Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 38. Finally, after 35 chapters of asking for it and longing for it and looking for it, finally God does show up to speak to brother Job. We remember back in chapter 23, verses 8 to 10, when Job said, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job said that he'd been looking for God and longing for God, but he could not find God in his suffering. But he did not lose faith. I cannot find him, Job says, but I know he sees me. And when this trial is over, I shall come forth as gold. Well, here in this chapter, Job's faith is finally rewarded. God comes and God has seen and God speaks. And in a sense, the book could end right here. There is a sense in which it doesn't really matter what God says. Job's great need was to know that God had seen him. The worst part of the friend's argument was the distancing of God, which seems to suggest that he didn't care what happened to people down here on earth. He made a marvelous moral machine, and the machine worked fine, and he didn't care one way or the other how we were making out in his marvelous moral universe. That vision of reality was soul-crushing to Brother Job. He, he believed that God did care and did see and was just. And, and that's why he's been in such distress. He can't make any sense of his suffering given who he believes God to be and given who he believes himself to be. And so all he's ever wanted is to stand before God and either receive a written indictment explaining what he had done wrong or at least getting the chance to argue before God that there had been some kind of miscarriage of justice. That's all he's ever wanted. He wants to speak to God. And now he gets his chance. God has come. Now, the conversation is not what Job expected. And it's not what we expected either. We expected that God would tell Job what has actually been going on. Surprise! Job, this has been a giant test and you have passed with flying colors. The devil questioned your integrity. He said that you only worship me because of the benefits that I gave to you. So I took all the benefits away and you still worship me. You win, Job. You have brought me great joy and glory and I am so proud of you. That's how I thought it would go. Job obviously wasn't expecting this sort of conversation either. He thought that God would either show him the big sin that he had committed, or he would explain why there was some kind of aberration in the way that Job was treated. But that's not what happened either. Instead, God shows up and takes Job to school, nature school. He asks Job a series of questions about the universe, all of which he knows very well that Job is incapable of answering. Klaus Westerman explains that all of the questions that God asks are really just one question. 
Are you creator or creature? Are you God or man? That's it. That's basically what's going on for the next four chapters. God is reminding Job that he really doesn't have a clue what is going on in the universe. Job doesn't understand how the universe was put together and how the universe is run and and by what means and values and for what causes and purposes. Job doesn't even know the question, let alone the answer. But God does. God has it all in hand. So while I agree with Klaus Westermann, maybe it would also be true to say that all of these questions are really just this question. Job, do you trust me? I think that's the issue. And in the end, we discover that Job does. He is never told anything about the actual circumstances behind his particular suffering. He never learns what we learned at the beginning of the story. He is never told anything about the actual circumstances behind his particular suffering. He never learns what we learned at the beginning of the story. He's never told about the conversation between God and the devil. He's never told what was going on behind the scenes. But after meeting God, after being reminded of his sovereignty, goodness, and power, Job decides that he doesn't need to know because he knows God. Now, in terms of this speech by God that begins here in chapter 38, the first thing we have to decide upon is the tone for our reading of it. How do we imagine that God sounded? I'm not talking about the timber of his voice. I'm talking about whether he sounded angry fatherly or professorial? What what is the proper tone? There's a fair bit of disagreement on this. Tremper Longman III assumes that God is angry with Job, or at least perturbed. He says, Job is now face to face with God, and God's appearance does make clear that he is not happy with Job. God's opening words to Job also indicate his irritation, closed quote. David Atkinson imagines God speaking to Job like a gentle professor, kind of a Gandalf-like character. He says, It may rather be that there is a gentle irony to the tone, and the questions are not threatening, but rather educative, the sort of questions a good teacher may ask a child in order to elicit understanding. It is as though the Lord God is taking a walk through his creation, a walk through the garden. Perhaps as the storm becomes still and is inviting Job to accompany him. Do you see this? Do you recognize that? As Jesus later invited his disciples to consider the lilies. So here, God is inviting Job to consider the beauty and order and wonder of the created world. Close quote. Matthew Henry imagines God speaking to Job as a father might speak to his son. He says, these two things God will sooner or later do for his people. He will show them their faults, that they may be themselves ashamed of them. And he will show others their righteousness and bring it forth as the light, that they may be ashamed of their unjust censures of them. Close quote. So Henry imagines God being firm with Job, but then also protective, turning around to, to others to vindicate Job in their eyes. Francis Anderson 
imagines God speaking to Job as a friend. Anderson is by far the most positive of all the commentators. He says, Just as Jesus invited us to consider the lilies of the field, so the Lord is like a friend who asks you to join him in a walk around his garden. There is a a kindly playfulness in the Lord's speeches, which is quite relaxing. Close quote. I don't know if I would go that far. I don't imagine that anyone is ever relaxed in the presence of the Lord, at least on this side of eternity. When the commentators are all over the map, I think the safest thing to do is to eliminate the outliers and to make a sort of amalgamation of what lies closer to the center. So if we took that course, I think we would imagine something between Henry's father and Atkinson's Gandalf, a a sort of firm, wise, ironic, instructive, and protective figure who loves Job enough to both teach him and correct him as required. So that's the tone I will attempt to maintain throughout. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Here, I think Henry has it right. I I think God is reminding Job of his fault. He starts with correction. You wanted to put me on trial, son? You, You wanted me to explain myself because you feel that you've been treated unfairly. Is that it? But do you really know enough to make that kind of charge? Are you qualified to examine me? Are you the judge or am I? Again, to agree with Westerman, God is asking Job here, are you the creator or are you the creature? Are you the parent or are you the child? Are you God, Job, or am I? Well, let's explore that, he says. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Scholars debate the nature of this connection between stars and sons of God. In the book of Revelation, the stars are sometimes equated with angelic beings. We see that, for example, in Revelation 9.1. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So it may be that God is asking Job if he was there when God made the angels. Did did he hear the first song ever sung by the angelic choir? Or he may be asking Job if he was there when he made the literal stars and whether or not he heard the song that the angels sung in admiration. Either way, the answer is no. Job wasn't there because Job isn't God. Verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. 
The C here sounds like a rambunctious toddler. God made it, he brought it forth from the womb, but then he had to establish some ground rules. You can play here, C, but not here. Have you ever spoken to the C that way, Job? Again, the answer is no, because Job isn't God. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Do you know how to turn on the morning, Job? Do you know how to use light to limit wickedness? Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Have you ever been to the land of the dead, Job, God asks? Do you even really know the land of the living, Job? Tell me, tell me what you know. Verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Here, God is referring to various constellations in the heavens. How, how good are you at astronomy, Job? Tell me what you know. Verse 34. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds? The flood of waters may cover you. Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick it fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? and wander about for lack of food. How good are you at managing the rain, 
the clouds, the environment, the seasons? Can you do that well enough to ensure that all the hungry birds of the sky and all the animals of the field get their fill? And of course, once again, the answer is no. Job can't do those things because Job isn't God. But I do suspect, as most of the commentators do, that by this time in the conversation, Job doesn't care. He's already got what he wanted. He's got God. God is talking to him. Maybe not about the things Job wanted to talk about, but who cares? God is talking to him. And that means that God has been watching over him like he watches over the birds and the baby lions and the movement of the stars and the seas. God's got this. I don't know what he's doing, but I know him. So it's all good. David Atkinson says fabulously here, for all those of us whose faith is tested by the darkness and the apparent absence of God, the great reassurance of Job 38 is that God speaks. The Lord does come. Closed quote. And thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Before.